Machine learning, we hear about it a lot. Why? Because it's a required foundation in taking that next step to artificial intelligence. Another why is because it's driving a fundamental change in how programmers will be doing what it is that they do. And lastly, it's because it's become so ubiquitous and really quite good that sometimes we don't even know when it's around. Time to hear more about machine learning. I'm John Pryor, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. Today, we're going to hear from Inmar Giovanni. Inmar is the Director of Machine Learning at Kindred.ai. We recently held our annual portfolio conference, and we're so pleased to give her the stage and are happy to be able to share this recording of her live presentation with you. Inmar worked at Microsoft Research and then went to Kobo, the ebook e-reader company, where her last role was as VP of Big Data. She's always been interested in applying machine learning techniques to real-world problems, and now we know why she's at Kindred. Kindred.ai is building systems that enable robots to understand and participate in our world with their ultimate goal of having intelligent machines working together with people. Here's Inmar on machine learning. Um, so what is machine learning? It's the, um, the development of computational approaches to automatically make sense of data. And the idea here is that um, you learn from examples. So for example, if I have a lot of images of cats and dogs, can I now um, see a new image of something that is either a cat or a dog and predict it with high accuracy? Okay, that's, uh, and the notion is that the algorithm, the machine, will somehow learn from the data. Um, we all use machine learning all the time. Um, and this is a quote that goes back uh, quite a few years ago. So as soon as it works, no one calls it AI anymore. This is by John McCarthy, one of the fathers of uh, AI. Um, he actually coined, he's uh, being credited with coining the term back in 1956. Um, so all of us are carrying in our pockets something like that. Um, we might have other sensors attached to us. We all have a laptop with a bunch of applications. We use the web and so on. Um, early, um, early examples of machine learning that we were all using um, when we started using emails, so circa 2000 and a little bit, people were already um, using spam uh, detection for email, uh, which, were, which you know, is uh, um, important for <laughs> all sorts of reasons and was one of the uh, nice examples of how you can take a lot of data that someone has actually labeled as, you know, this is a real email, this is spam, and uh, train a machine on it. Um, then we started having uh, face detection on our digital cameras. So um, if you remember, you know, we, we started having digital cameras, and then all of a sudden they would show us where are the faces. So this is an application of machine learning. Um, what do I mean by that? Um, so this is a, around recommendation system. So um, a lot of the purchasing we do online now is somehow um, influenced by recommendation system. A lot of the movies we choose to watch on Netflix, the music we choose to listen to, and so on, is all based on um, the machine understanding our tastes and then predicting something that we would like. Again, a very common application of uh, machine learning um, infrastructure. Speech recognition, speech translation, language translation. I don't know if you use the services of Google, but I will sometimes talk to my machine. Um, and there are many, many other um, applications for machine learning. So in computational biology, which is something that I, I, I've worked on in my master's, um, how do we take um, genomic data and try to understand mechanisms that, um, around cellular operations and proteins and so on? Um, and the list goes on. I would definitely agree that there is uh, a machine learning and data revolution happening. And, um, and I wanted to 
um, tell you a little bit about why I think we're in this uh, point in time. So the first thing is the availability of data. Um, and that's because we have so many services that are capturing data, we're all using cloud services, we have our mobile phones that go with us everywhere and capture everything. Um, and that didn't used to be the case 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and, and with supervised learning, as uh, we just mentioned, you need data, you need examples, you need examples to learn from. So that's one huge change that happened over the last decade or so, the availability of data. The next one, this is probably not even uh, um, a new model anymore, is the, the computing power that we have. So um, with um, GPUs, with um, big amounts of RAM that you can use, and especially with cloud services that allow you to, um, in a matter of minutes, fire up a cloud on AWS or other um, infrastructure that's available. You don't need to build the machine yourself or buy them. You don't need to um, understand how to set up your cluster. You don't need to spend all of that engineering effort on the basics. Instead, you know, fire up um, an instance of AWS and you can start running some code on it. Um, and that really made it um, easy for people to jump over that initial barrier of technology that required a lot of time, effort, and uh, engineering uh, um, knowledge. And then as these things came together, what happened is that a lot of people started developing code for doing all of these types of applications. So for processing data at scale, for storing data at scale, retrieving data, um, queuing and, uh, and, um, and logging and so on. And, and again, this used to be the case that you had to do a lot of the groundwork yourself and spend a lot of time on it. And now there are all these off-the-shelf, um, often free, uh, thanks to the Apache Foundation, um, packages that allow you to, to manipulate data and to work with data. And that's also um, true for machine learning. So again, it used to be the case that if you wanted an algorithm, if you wanted one of these instances of algorithms that I've talked about, your best bet was to sit down and write it. Whether you were using MATLAB or R or Python or C, it doesn't matter. You kind of had to sit down and write it yourself. Um, now you don't need to do it anymore because people have developed packages for machine learning algorithms um, for uh, the entire, either, either the actual algorithm, so you write some of your own code and then you use an existing uh, package for implementing the algorithm, or even an end-to-end -end approach where you just um, use some services like Azure Machine Learning or um, the Amazon Machine Learning services um, that basically implement the entire technology stack for you. Um, and that also makes it extremely, um, extremely easy for, for people to start using machine learning. And um, really it's becoming, uh, we're seeing the transition of machine learning from something that used to be a, a science that required someone with deep understanding and a lot of years of learning it to uh, an engineering um, tool, basically. Something that every engineer can, can use. Um, anyone who's, uh, who's played around with, with code and data can, um, can implement themselves or can use existing implementation. Um, so going back to the question of, uh, of what is exactly big data, um, so I would say that everyone is tracking and measuring everything. So every search you do in Google, every place you go, um, every video you watch, YouTube, Netflix, whatever, um, anything you do on Facebook and so on. Um, and everyone is trying to utilize this data. So there is this notion that, you know, the data is important. We can do something with it. Um, what can we do with it? And I would say there is the, that big data um, is at the intersection of um, these three capabilities. So the capability to use algorithms and to model um, your data in a meaningful way. The capability to have large-scale processing um, engineering, because if you're dealing with big data, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of work just um, around wrangling the data. 
and being able to ask domain-specific questions, um, something that's meaningful for your business and for your enterprise. And now I'll, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about some practical considerations for, um, for e-commerce and other domains. And, and again, I'm coming from, uh, from that particular uh, field of knowledge, and um, I want to give you some concrete examples, and I hope that regardless of your domain, you'll find something that's relevant for you to think about. So the first thing is um, use your data, not your gut feeling. So there's, um, we often make the, the mistake of, of thinking that we know how things actually work. Um, and we need to remember that we're not actually our customers. Um, we, we don't necessarily are able to imitate their thought process um, and that we have a wide variety of customers and use cases, um, say, in e-commerce. Um, so for instance, um, so one of the things to, to, to be able to do that, to not use your gut feeling, is to start by having a really good sense of what um, your domain is telling you about your data. So that's more on the um, descriptive analytics side. But um, here is an example. So um, at Kobo, we didn't really understand, you know, when I joined, what was the attribution of sales. So we had a lot of different types of pages that describe different types of offers and um, and carousels with books and so on, but where does the, where, if we look at the 100% of sales of books, where do they actually come from? Um, and just putting that in place was really helpful for us to understand that some of these pages, even though from a gut feeling perspective, they seem like, oh, this should be really doing well, um, this is like a really nice sale and really nice um, um, offers and so on, there isn't necessarily a lot of traffic to these pages. So people are not seeing them, people are not buying them. So again, understanding something like what are my best pages uh, in terms of conversion um, for, for an e-commerce website, and then if the conversion is high but the traffic is low, what kind of things can I do to make people um, drive to that particular page? Um, does marketing work and how does it work? So um, there are many different ways in which subject matter experts think that um, they can drive better sales, so sales and marketing. Um, and they would come up with very creative ideas for things to do um, in the context of books. Um, okay, let's have a sale around books that are uh, made by Canadian authors, or maybe after some uh, famous author has died or received a Nobel Prize, we'll create you know, a special landing page for that author. Um, so it's it all sounds really good, but um, you really need to uh, make sure that the marketing efforts and uh, the, the assets that you're putting on the websites are actually meaningful and actually driving sales or driving uh, traffic and so on. And um, from my experience, at least, and obviously I represent the machines, not the, the people, um, you cannot beat the machines, right? So if you took, if on the website, no matter what kind of, uh, of juggling um, the subject matter experts try to do, if you put together things that come from the personal recommendation, which is automated, the um, trending titles, which is automated, and, um, and some other assets that are automated, that in itself was probably responsible for anything between, you know, 60 to 80% of sales, depending on who you ask. And, but that's, that's a lot, right? So... Um, so it's very, very hard to come up with something intuitive that um, will necessarily be do better than, than an automated approach. Um, here's another sort of story from, uh, from, you know, from uh, the real world, um, and that I know that a lot of you are, um, uh, well, at least I think some of you are, are CTOs or VP of engineering. Um, so we have um, in the recommendation system, for instance, You've seen a recommendation system, maybe you use Netflix or, or some other service. 
Um, you go through some recommendations that have to do, say, with a particular title, right? If you watch this movie, you might like some other movie. And I, I, know, I don't know how many of you have gone all the way to the end, so you click, and then you're like, oh, I wish there were some more books or some more titles here. Maybe that's a sentiment you've had, maybe not. Um, but uh, what we had is, you know, part of the engineering uh, infrastructure um, would grab all of these additional recommendations for a book and would display them. And you can't see all of them at once. You kind of need to click through them or scroll through them and whatever. And um, they came and said, listen, this is a pretty expensive process in terms of uh, how it affects the page load times. And we think we can just cut it down to instead of the 40-some titles that you're showing right now, we can cut it down to six or 12 or whatever. Um, and, and that was where their gut feeling kind of came in, into play because they said, and we don't think it will affect anything because no one could possibly be buying from the, eight, the 48th title or the 50th title that you show there. And that's a great example of where you just have to go and, and look at your data because um, it's there, it's accessible, you don't need to trust anyone's gut feeling. And what we discovered is that about 10% of the sales related to this particular asset came from the very long tail of the titles. And so if you were to simply um, assume that not a lot of people buy from that asset and, and you know, just get rid of all of that for engineering optimization purposes, you're going to um, get hit by 10% of your sales. And this happened to be the biggest uh, driver of, of sales as a single asset in the web page. So not a good idea. Um, so um, given that you're not your average user and that you can't, um, that you can't really trust your gut feeling too much, um, the, the paradigm we took is to test everything. So any algorithm we wanted to deploy, any idea we had would basically go through this framework of A-B testing, um, which um, how many people are familiar with A-B testing? Okay, so almost everyone, so I'll just say one, um, one quick thing about it. Um, in the context of, let's say, a web page, um, you have an idea for even something simple like, oh, I think if I make the buy button bigger, people will um, buy more. So instead of just trusting this idea or um, deploying it and comparing two different timelines, uh, you basically deploy, um, you de deploy the new version to 50% of your user base or some other percent of your user base. You let it run for a while, and then you compare the result. And that gives you um, a real way to validate your hypothesis. Um, and so we did um, extensive amount of A-B testing for everything, and a lot of times the results were quite surprising. So we would get something that was completely unlike what we would expected, and then we would go and do the deep dive analysis of, okay, this didn't work at all, why didn't it work? What was different? Um, what about the traffic was different, and so on. So it's an extremely important um, tool for, uh, for an e-commerce type operation and, and other types of operation. And of course, if you're doing something like A-B testing, you need to make sure that you're correctly um, doing it you know, in the right statistical way and so on. This is where having some um, subject matter expertise does come into, uh, into play. Um, personalize everything. So we, we, we understood that it's very important to give the user a personalized experience, but it's also very important from, um, from the sales perspective. So, Rather than, for instance, ask things about how can we take our group of users and segment them into segments, five, 10, 100, it doesn't matter, and then do something per segment, um, 
that doesn't really scale. What you really want to do is just find an algorithmic, an algorithmic solution that will hit any particular user with what's best for them. So here is an example. Um, many websites, including ours, will actually still use something like an email, and will send an email with you know, the best uh, new releases of books or movies or whatever products from the, um, the last few days or month or whatnot. Um, so what you want to do there, for instance, is just personalize the content of that email for every one of your users rather than just send them a list. So even if your list of new items is limited, even if there is just 20 of them, you can still order them in a way that's most, most relevant to, to any one particular user based on what you know of their habits so far. And that leads to this idea of um, data-driven products. So how do you not just use your data for analytics purposes and for understanding what your users are saying? And again, that's something that you alluded to, but you just create a product that's based on your data. Um, and we, we've done a lot of these things. So uh, I've mentioned some of the automated, uh, automated list of books uh, as, as an example um, that are completely um, data-driven. So what's trending, what's personalized, uh, what's useful for you. Um, but even things where the subject matter experts would curate the lists would be personalized um, to your taste. So at least the ordering and the way that they are displayed will be personalized. Um, Content-based stuff. So because we're using digital content and we can analyze the content, and that's true for books, for movies, for uh, sound, and so on, we were able to, um, to provide, um, as a product uh, for the users, analytics about the product for things like you know, the number of pages and how long it will take you to read it. That can be personalized based on what we know about your reading pace. Um, interesting terms and phrases from the book that you can use to search for other books because they're, they're also, they are also, um, you see the same types of patterns of NLP in other books and so on. So um, thinking about how can you use um, what you have to provide an additional service for your user base. Um, and going to this uh, notion of quantified self, so that's, that's something that people are actually quite interested in. And, and I know that um, as you mentioned, Chris, in Europe, things are quite different uh, in terms of um, privacy and policy around data. Um, but there is definitely this big trend, especially around young people, I would say, um, that are not so concerned about the privacy, but they really want to understand what they're doing. They want to measure and track everything, right? So giving back the users on a personal level what you've gotten from them is, first of all, it's, it's, it's a nice exchange. I mean, there's something fair about it. I collect your data, but I give you back some information about yourself that's useful. Um, and it's also something that's very appealing to, to younger demographics. So, um, so in the case of, uh, of what we did uh, with books, we basically created for every user sort of a, a personal, uh, like a Fitbit type of um, report that says, this is what you've read, this is how much time you spent on it, um, this is... Um, some uh, relevant books that people that are similar to you are reading that might be interesting for you. These are just some tidbits of information we collected from our entire user base uh, that might be like fun facts and so on. So we would do that. Um, and thinking about the question of, uh, of privacy and would people react negatively to that um, and how as an organization you need to think about these things, we definitely put in place uh, mechanisms for avoiding, we didn't send emails to people where we thought the books that you know, would be displayed would not be something they would want to see in an email. Maybe they want to read it, but they don't want it you know, being sent back to them in an email. So uh, there is, you need to pay attention to these things. Yeah, and again, to iterate this notion of, uh, we want to move away from, uh, from having data and machine learning algorithms and whatnot as decision support tools. 
you take the data, you analyze it, you bring it to someone who is in marketing or whatever, and they look at it and they say, okay, based on this, we'll do A, B, C. You want to completely start skipping this part and just automate the entire process, right? Um, so, for instance, um, your website, right? You can say, well, what's the best asset to put on the top and on the side and so on? Um, we can collect some data and we can show it to someone who will then make decisions. But, of course, the fact they're making decisions doesn't make they're actually making the optimal decision. Um, going the completely automated way will mean that you put together a system um, which is sort of like you know, A-B test on steroids in the sense that it is always optimizing and always changing, um, and you reconfigure the layout of your web page and what's shown um, in different areas based on users' behavior. And it's an, on it's an ongoing, um, continuously optimizing framework where no one's making a decision um, other than the algorithmic framework. So just um, a couple of quick notes about the future um, and where I see machine learning um, heading in general. Um, so there, there are two big areas uh, that I think um, are well accepted among other people as well. So the first one is more natural interfaces. So we won't have to uh, type or structure uh, the way we interact with, um, with data services um, in a way that tailors to the algorithm, but rather tailor to how human interact. And the second thing, which, which I find the most um, exciting uh, and does have a little bit to do with uh, what I'm doing right now, is the notion of, um, of robotics and of interacting agents in the real world. So I think that's the, the, big, the next big frontier for machine learning and AI because um, over the years I've seen how a lot of the problems that um, were big open problem in research when I started um, studying the area have been solved effectively. Um, we have solutions for... Um, for all sorts of visual tasks um, and um, natural, natural language processing, audio understanding that used to be, you know, we would have algorithms and they would perform at about, say, 70, 80, 85% accuracy rate, but that was not enough. And um, especially deep learning and other advances have moved it to the level of um, above, hum above human accuracy. So these problems are solved. This is not interesting anymore in a way. But one thing that we definitely still don't know how to do is take something that interacts in the world, um, continuously gathers information from multi-model uh, sensory inputs, so touch and hearing and audio, and, uh, sorry, and visual and so on, makes decision, uh, continues to learn, um, and does something useful in that context uh, in a non-dangerous way to, to humans around it. So, so for me, this is, this is the next frontier, and this is um, where, where I see a lot of effort um, from all sorts of industries coming in the next few years. It's clear where all this is going. More natural interfaces, natural language processing, agents, chatbots, and even robots, all constantly learning and working with us all. It's going to be quite the future. Thanks for joining us for the Impact Podcast. I'm John Pryor.